Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 433rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a trailblazer, a veteran of Death Theater who has appeared on Broadway and on TV shows, including The Mandalorian, en route to being cast in Sean Hader's film Coda as Frank Rossi, a deaf fisherman with a hearing daughter who serves as his family's link to the hearing world. He was a nominee this year for the Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe Award. He won the Best Supporting Actor BAFTA, Critics' Choice, Gotham, Spirit, and SAG Awards. He became the first deaf male actor ever nominated for an Oscar, and he is now the heavy frontrunner to become the first deaf male actor ever to win an Oscar, specifically in the category of Best Supporting Actor, Troy Kotzer. Over the course of our conversation, the 53-year-old and I discussed what it was like for him growing up as the only deaf member of his family— and how his ability to communicate with his beloved father was tragically robbed of him, how he made his name in deaf theater over a nearly 30-year period, but struggled to make ends meet to the extent that he almost quit the business shortly before CODA, what it was like for him making CODA with friends and fellow deaf actors Marley Matlin and Daniel Durant, as well as Amelia Jones, why the very existence of CODA means so much to the deaf community, and what his award season journey has been like for him, Plus, much more. And so, with thanks to Troy's interpreter, Justin Maurer, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Troy Kotzer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you, and congratulations on all the exciting news lately. We can't even list all of it. It would take all of our time. So I want to begin, though, as we always do on this podcast, by just asking you, uh, if you would share with our listeners, where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born and raised in a small, the small city of Mesa, Arizona, in the Phoenix area. My father was a former police chief. He was a cop, and he later on became the chief of police for many years. And my mother, my mother was a freelancer and a housewife, and she, she worked in tailoring when I was growing up. And that's where I came from, the state of Arizona. Now, your uh, parents were hearing, right? Yes, they were. My entire family was hearing, and I have t three brothers who are hearing, and I'm the only deaf member of the family. And this was back in the 1960s, and I just happened to be born deaf. Yes. 
And my parents were actually quite scared, and they didn't know what to do with a deaf child. And they had these evaluations and tests, and they found that American Sign Language would best fit me uh, as far as my education, and that led to me learning sign language. I'm so grateful to my parents to have been so involved in my life, and they even learned ASL to communicate with me. Well, I, I, I guess I'm curious, how would you say being deaf shaped your childhood? I know that you went to certain schools where I think it was uh, specifically for deaf children, but I also know that being there is where some of your desire to be creative, maybe be an actor, came out of those environments, right? Well, when I was younger growing up, I would go for the school for the deaf, and they didn't have a theater department. But during that time, there was one beginning to become established. And so when I was a freshman in high school, I was watching their public school really had an entire theater and drama department. But I was telling myself, you know, I really want to learn how to integrate with hearing people and socialize with them and collaborate. Of course, before I graduated, of course, there's so many hearing people out there. And so therefore, I had to learn how to work with them. So when I was growing up, I, I went to the school for the deaf and I had that experience. But I grew up in a hearing family. And how could I traverse these two worlds and code shift and really experience both worlds? And so experiencing both worlds led me to collaborate and, and really enjoy collaboration. It doesn't matter to me whether they're deaf or hearing. It's just fun for me to be social and work with people. Were there any heroes or role models for you who you, you saw and you said, well, they've experienced something similar to what I have, and they've gone on to be an actor or director or whatever you were at that time hoping to be, or were there just not those role models? Putting the arts aside, mm -hmm. who I really looked up to most was my father. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that, of course, this is back in the 60s and 70s, so there weren't many doctors or audiologists or folks familiar with sign language or deaf culture, period. When I was born, my father learned I was deaf, and he really took his time to become involved in my life. He took me to play golf. He took me to go water skiing. He took me camping and all of the above. And looking back at how involved my father was in my life, he, he was the head coach of many of my sports teams. And I'll never forget that I was playing on a hearing baseball team, and my father was the head coach, and he saw that I was a bit lonely and a bit ostracized with all these hearing players kind of speaking around me without me being involved in communication with them. So he established a soccer team of all deaf players. And they were looking for a center because there were so many deaf people that lived all across the state. And so they found the perfect place, which was in Phoenix, which was the center where all of the deaf kids could bus into this soccer team. And my father made it happen. I mean, again, this is back in the 60s. So really, there wasn't any awareness of deaf culture. But my point is, is when I was 17 years old, my father got in a car accident. Uh, he was hit by a drunk driver. And my father was unable to sign or communicate with me any longer. It was a complete communication breakdown, and everything for our family changed in that moment. And my father was paralyzed from the neck down. His, it was able to move his head and speak, but he was unable to sign. And so we had to change our method of communication. But my point is, is that my father had such strength and he endured, you know, being paralyzed from the neck down in a wheelchair for over 15 years. And looking at myself, being deaf was nothing. You know, there, it was nothing to worry about. I could still play golf. 
I could still go water skiing. I could go camping. You know, it didn't matter whether I was deaf or not. And so looking at my father, it really taught me such an important lesson. My father was my hero. My father gave me strength in show business. I didn't care if Hollywood was ready for me or not. I had to remain persistent and do what I loved. And really, my father was my hero. And really, that's the reason why I broke through. And so I'm so grateful to my father. It's an amazing story. And I mean, I think the fact that you are such a positive, upbeat uh, person, it really is, in a lot of ways, to me, amazing because between what you went through, what you've just described with your father. I know there was other tragic stuff with your brother and and what you yourself just, I'm sure it can't be easy as a kid to be different in any way. You know, one of my best memories looking back was spending time with my little brother. It was just between up till when he was four years old. We played with toys and we played outside and he drowned in a swimming pool in our backyard and no one saw him. It was an accident. And he was underwater for almost 40 minutes. And so that led to severe brain damage and functionality. And so really, he was almost unable to function. And he really needed to depend on machines to stay alive. And that's what I saw. I was only about seven years old. And so that happening to my father as well, you know, those two events in my life, those that was disability. You know, sometimes I would forget that I'm disabled myself because I'm deaf, but I don't feel disabled because it's just the only difference to me is communication and the language I use. It's just how others perceive me. And it depends on how much you know about deaf culture and sign language. And the further you are, the more ignorant you are. But the closer it is, like if you have deaf family members, it really depends on the individual. And so that's why... You know, what was so beautiful about our film, CODA, it just exposed deaf culture and CODA culture and the CODA being at the center of the story became a bridge to bridge these two worlds. And really, nothing has happened like that since silent films because in silent films, deaf and hearing people could watch Charlie Chaplin together and you'd have these little bits of subtitles pop up. And when sound came into the picture, really, it caused the deaf audience to be divided and marginalized from the experience. And hearing people could enjoy the visuals and the dialogue, but deaf people, it really took us almost 100 years, really, and all that bullshit, you know, finally with the Americans with Disabilities Act and access, and it took years of struggle And then now CODA's out. And Apple TV Plus finally burned in closed captioning into every single showing of the film so that everyone can enjoy it simultaneously. So we haven't had that experience ever since silent film. And And what people should know when when you say burned in, our our listeners and viewers should know that it's not an option to do you want to turn on subtitles or not. This is there because, of course, there are people who need it. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that because, you know, Apple asked me, hey, you know, what's wrong with the device that you stick in your cup holder for closed captioning? I'm like, yeah, it's a good start, but it has issues from my personal experience. When I arrive at the movie theater, they often don't charge it or it doesn't work or the movie starts and you miss the first 15 minutes of the film and I have to talk to them to give me a new device or they give me a voucher to go see the same film on a different day. And I'm like, can you please make sure you charge this captioning device? And if people walk by, I, I have to, like, bend this device back just when people are walking by, you know, and, and I, where do I set my drink down? Other hearing people have the cup holder, and I'm stuck with my captioning device in the cup holder. But now with 
Apple TV Plus burning in the, the captioning, I have the freedom to eat popcorn, put my arm around my wife, and just enjoy the film, you know? Right. Well, an a, amazing way in which I think your life has come kind of full circle is that for you and probably for a lot of deaf people, the first example of a deaf performer getting recognition in the industry was in 1987, almost exactly 35 years ago to the day, when somebody named Marley Matlin won the Best Actress Oscar. Marley Matlin, that's right. What did that mean to you? You know, I couldn't imagine if Marley didn't exist and had never won the Oscar. What would life for deaf actors be like today? Would Hollywood still not be ready for us? But it was such a great, great thing that she won in 1987. It was a wonderful start. And I have so much respect for her to to have worked so hard to educate everyone and cast authentically and fight, you know, all, all the political battles throughout the years. And she has been a representative of the deaf and hard of hearing Big D and Little D community, and she kept our hope alive. She was an Oscar award winner, and that really kept my hope alive and inspired me. And now as a nominee, you know, we both have this mutual understanding, and we've both been able to experience this journey together, and we've had so much to share. We really hope to really help educate Hollywood, to really collaborate and work together, because we have so much rich history in the deaf community, so many stories to tell. We have positive stories. We have tragedies, and I'm really looking forward to telling them. Well, and people should... It's easy to forget. She was only 21 years old. She was the youngest Best Actress winner ever, and you, I think, were only 17. So when that moment happened, did it kind of make it more uh, realistic to you that if you're going to pursue a career in acting, it might actually go somewhere? I was sitting down on the couch, and it was the first time I saw an authentic deaf actor on the big screen. I have never seen that before. Many hearing actors play deaf, and it's hard to connect, and I understand wanting A-listers and politics and all that bullshit. But at that moment, I was really, it really moved me. And I was hoping to see more and more. And it really meant that Hollywood was slowly changing. But historically, you know, these characters tended to be the victim. And they were weak, weak characters, someone to have sympathy for. And when I read the script of Coda, it, I was thrilled because that was exactly what we needed. Frank Rossi was tough. He was loving. He was fun. He had a great sense of humor. And he was frustrated with the hearing community. And he had a good heart. And so that's exactly the role I was looking for. And, and he gets to swear. Frank. And he gets to drop <laughs> F-bombs. <Yeah>. Yep. <laughs> Well, so let's talk about, if we can, the beginning of, I mean, for most people, it's not like Marley, I think, where they early on get an opportunity and on film. It's usually stage. And in, in fact, for you, I think that was really the case going back like 30 years. Can you tell people what is Deaf West and how did it become a part of your life? Like I mentioned earlier, Hollywood wasn't quite ready for deaf actors, and how would I remain acting and keep working? So Deaf West was a really friendly zone of access for me where I had the opportunity to work on various productions. But from a bird's eye view, I really had the privilege of meeting so many people, networking, and who knows who would be in the audience, a casting director, a director, and folks would contact me and say, hey, I'm interested in casting you. I'm like, how did you know about me? They're like, hey, I saw you about three years ago in one of your productions. So it was a great way to show my work and really build my network. 
and build my career. And so on the stage, that was really the one place I had access to. If I was hearing, how many opportunities would I have? There'd be just gazillions, but really, this was the only opportunity for me. But really, we were surrounded by Hollywood, and, and TV, film, and theater were all in one city, which was Los Angeles, and that's why I stayed in L.A. since 1994. Well, let's say there's somebody out here listening or watching who doesn't know what Deaf West is or how it works. I mean, can you explain, are all the people on the stage deaf, or is it a combination of deaf and, and hearing? Are people in the audience only able to follow what's going on if they understand sign language, or is it trans interpreted for them? Uh, just how does it work? Because they really can, if they wish, to this day, go and see it and support Deaf West, right? Definitely. It's really, it's extremely fascinating and a unique process. It's not like your everyday theater where it's just you have spoken dialogue. On Deaf West, uh, let me give you an example. So when I'm signing, there'll be several hearing folks who can sync up the voiceover to match my dialogue. And so we'll do a cold read in sign language, and the voiceover actors can kind of pick up the rhythm during rehearsal. And so it, it is a process, and the challenge is, is to sync up the spoken word and the signing at the same time, because sometimes there'll be a delay in either language, and you have to figure out a balance on how to sync them up. You might have to add an extra sign or maybe take a breath or a space, and it's a work in progress. But the most importantly is you hit that simultaneous communication period rather than have these delays, because then we'd lose the storyline and lose the audience. But it's such a unique way of producing a, a stage production. And so, you know, I know the limitations on TV and film as far as respecting the script and vice versa on the theater stage. You want to avoid dead air. You know what I mean? Well, and another thing that really shows a kind of full circle moment in your life, one of the people who I believe has been matched when you're signing and he's uh, interpreting is happens to be somebody who just a year ago was nominated for an Oscar in the exact same category in which you're nominated this year. How far back do you go with... Paul Racy, who people now know from Sound of Metal. Paul Racy is one of my best friends. And I've known I, Paul. He's a CODA himself. And he's one of the few professional actors that I know. And I've worked with Paul on maybe more than five productions. I saw, I think you were brothers in Sereno. You did the same character in American Buffalo. Like, people really, you, this is not an exaggeration. You really have history together. Definitely. We had such great chemistry. Uh, we have great teamwork. We have a mutual understanding. We really care about acting and our craft, and we know what's the best for the play. And I would always love working with Paul in the future. I'm still waiting for a good script, and maybe we can work together again. And just a fun fact for, for people joining us, did you also go out for that part in Sound of Metal? I did. I did audition for Sound of Metal. A few months later, the director and producer decided that, you know, an audition tends, they tend to make a lot of changes in the character because sometimes someone comes in who's fascinating and you want to make adjustments to really fit that actor. And, you know, it might be an older way of, of thinking to say, oh, why did you cast this person? Really, they cast Paul for a reason, to fit that role and what was best for the production. But I was so happy to see Paul have that experience and have that journey. I believe you also met somebody else who's been a pretty important person in your life at Deaf West. Who might that be? 
so when I saw Daniel Durant, and Daniel Durant plays plays Leo, who's Frank Rossi's son in Coda, Daniel really reminded me of myself when I was younger. I see him so hungry and so passionate. And I was like, hey, I remember that. And I see his, I saw his behavior. I saw how athletic he was. And, you know, he's almost half my age. And I'd give him a bit of advice here and there and explain a bit about the history of filmmaking. And I hope in the future to pass the torch along to Daniel. And Daniel can carry that torch and pass it on to future generations. Now, I was going to bring up Daniel and you knowing each other, but that's not even who I'm referring to. Where did you meet your wife? Where did I meet my wife? Yes. Well, the deaf community is quite small. And we happened to be folks who were interested in the theater arts, and we were attending workshops. And we saw each other, and I thought... Deanne had something, and she thought I had something too, but she was a tough lady, and it took me about four years to get a date with her and before I even offered a date, you know? And I was so happy that we're still together almost 25 years later, and I'm so thrilled she's been able, she'll come to the Oscar, Oscars with me that night. Now, you mentioned workshops, and I think that that's been a side thing that's also very important in connection with Deaf West and other deaf theater work that you've done, where... You're working with young deaf people to show them that there is a place for them to do this kind of work, right? I completely agree 110% with what you're saying. It's nice to have workshops and training, not just for deaf folks and not just hearing folks, but I'd like to bring them all together because I have memories of one of my favorite improv uh, teachers. His name was Gray Austin. And Gray Austin was one of my former improv teachers. And she taught me so much. And they would put hearing and deaf folks together and they'd have to figure out how to communicate and improv. Sometimes it was awkward, but it really was a big influence on me on how to interact with hearing actors and vice versa, how the hearing actor could interact with the deaf actor. And so it was wonderful training ground for me. And, you know, I don't think there should be limitations to these workshops, but the more these actors are involved in, the more you become aware and become a better actor and have an understanding of different methods, if you know what I mean. But it's pretty cool also when, I mean, you've now been doing it long enough that some of the people who you worked with when they were kids are now coming to you as adults and remembering what an impact you had. Oh, absolutely. So when I was younger, and back in the 90s, how was I going to support my way of living? I had shows at night, and my pay wasn't so great. And so I worked as a teacher for workshops, and I'd go to mainstream schools, deaf schools, and I would travel around and teach many theater workshops. And they were fun. We'd bring in... We did one that was... Uh, the Giving Tree, which was a book, yeah, right? Yeah. And so we would workshop that book and have plays and storytelling. And I did elementary school to college age kids. And when that was done, I'd have my show that night. And so that really was something to help support me financially. But many years later, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all these folks are sending me old pictures on social media when I was teaching those workshops. And now all these kids are grown up and it's so touching. And I'm so proud that I did that. And I'm so glad that I was able to reach out to these kids. And later on, they remember me. Well, it's pretty so cool. It is so touching. Pretty cool for them, too, that they can say they were taught by a, an Oscar nominated, maybe soon to be Oscar winning actor. That's a cool thing for them, too. Oh, yes, it's such a great benefit for them, the deaf and hard of hearing community, and really everyone. And really, the important thing to me is to increase awareness, and I'm so proud of my work. And I'm really seeing that Hollywood feels more accepting of me as an actor who just happens to be deaf, not just because of my deafness. It's a completely different thing. 
It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply so you've talked about in other interviews that i read to prepare for this that one of the challenges with getting screen opportunities is that I guess people are concerned that, you know, the the way you, you speak might sound different to some people or whatever. I know that's been something you've thought about a lot. What was the – there's two words in the history of your career where you have spoken audibly and I think that they connect back to important moments in your life. Can you talk about what those were? Do you mean Stella and go? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, you did your homework. Great job. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Thank you're you. good. You're a good journalist. You're a great reporter. <laughs> Thank you. I understand why they hired you. <laughs> well, tell us, I mean, Stella is one of the most famous lines that anybody says on stage, but you're playing Stanley Kowalski in Shrikar. It was otherwise you signing, right? But why was it important to actually say that famous line? That is an interesting question because, of course, that's one of the classic productions, right? Marlon Brando, when he's screaming Stella, to me it was like, so what? No big deal. I'm deaf. I don't care. But hearing people told me, ooh, that moment is just so impactful for people. So I did a bit of research and I watched the film a few times. And at Deaf West, we had a really interesting approach. So most of you know the story, uh, Streetcar, right? And so you have Blanche. And Blanche wants to escape her reputation, right? And so she was involved in some dirty business. So she came to see her sister, Stella. And she felt like it was a safe haven. It would be quiet. No one would hear the rumors and gossip. But we turned the tables on that one. So the reason why Blanche goes to stay with her sister is because her sister is deaf. And staying with a deaf couple is the safest place. But that was wrong because it's impossible for deaf people to keep rumors inside, right? So rumors will spread even quicker. And so it was an interesting concept. And so there was this scene where where Stella was extremely upset. and She's trying to escape and she goes upstairs with her sister Blanche. And so Stanley goes upstairs and Stanley's, or Stanley's outside and he sees the window and he sees Blanche. And he's so, and I just screamed Stella at the top of my lungs. And I saw Blanche react and cover her ears. And then that would influence Stella to react through the window. 
And so she pulls up the window shades and I'm down on the street because, of course, Stella's deaf in our production. She comes down the stairs and we embrace each other. So it was a great metaphor. And because I knew as as Stanley that Blanche would react. But, of course, Stella is deaf. She wouldn't be able to hear that. But Blanche would react and that would influence Stella to react. And so, oh, that's my husband, Stanley. How touching. And she runs down the stairs. And so it was such a beautiful moment. And Go, of course, and Coda. Yes. It really took me actually quite a bit of practice because I was struggling with the G sound. It almost sounded like a D, da-da-da-da, instead of ja-ja-ja. And so I had to kind of practice and warm up A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on, and kind of warm my voice up. I wasn't used to using my voice. You know, ever since Stella, this was the, the second spoken line of dialogue for me. And I had to repeat that over and over again. And I didn't realize that they'd keep that take. And so someone who saw her film told me, hey, how do you, you know, your voice sounds like a warm bedsheet to me. When I hear you say go, it's like a warm bedsheet. And I was like, wow, that's the hearing perspective. You know, I'm deaf. I don't know what it sounds like. Well, and it's just that's so been powerful. really fun. Yeah. It was fun for me to share that with Absolutely. the world. Um, well, let's talk about the fact that one of the people, again, where where what you're experiencing by watching on one side of the screen kind of comes to life in front of you. Who was, I believe, a regular attendee at Depp West and a particularly big fan of yours was Marley Matlin. How did you got, you guys have actually, it's not like you just met on CODA. You guys have worked together. She's seen your stuff, but you've also worked together a number of times. I think there was um, initially a CSI New York episode where you played a married parents of a murdered girl. That was in 2006. In 2013, you directed her in a feature film, No Ordinary Hero, the Super Duffy movie. Just can you talk about how your relationship with Marley has kind of evolved to the point where you could believably play a married couple in CODA? It was extremely important for me to focus on my work and just continue working and work hard. And Marley recognized my work. And she saw that I was doing what I loved, which was my craft of acting. And I was also passionate to direct and act on stage and in TV and film. And I didn't want to limit myself to just acting and wait for the phone to ring for an audition. Yay, great, I got an audition. No, I wanted to keep going. I wanted to really expend my energy. And so I I would audition. And Marley, I have one scene with her where I play her husband. And we looked at each other. Oh, it was a cool experience. Mm -hmm. She kind of knew me, and I kind of knew her. Mm -hmm. And uh, my film's No Ordinary Hero, The Super Deffy. I directed that, and she was in three scenes, and I was able to direct Marley. And we really had a fun time working together. She, We seemed to really understand my process and what a director and an actor, what their responsibilities are, which are quite distinct. And Marley said, hey, I'm not ready to be a director right now. Later on, maybe, but I'm enjoying watching what you do. And then, you know, I've been your big fan because she would come see me at Deaf West ever since 94. And so it was kind of a full circle. And then when Coda hit, you know, there it is. That you, The rest is history, right? Amazing, amazing. And the fact that, I mean, you, she was obviously the first deaf person of either gender to be nominated for an Oscar, but certainly, of course, the first actress. But here you are, the first deaf actor. Uh, it's it's just like you couldn't have scripted it. It's been so beautiful. You know, the spirit of our directors and our director and producers and Marley really had to fight to bring that authenticity forward. 
So I'm so grateful to them that they really believed in us. And of course, Apple TV believed in us and Sundance believed in us. And just, it was so inspiring ever since the release of our film and and have nominations and awards even today. You know, it's this, just a story that everyone can relate to is just a positive message for many different reasons, especially the message to cherish and love your family no matter w- what way you communicate. I think that, you know, people maybe when they when they look at a resume or a biography or whatever they only see the 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 good moments the great moments uh and for you i know one of them for instance was in the early 2000s you're in big river this this uh production which starts in la goes to broadway you're on broadway from july through september 2003 that's a that's got to feel great on the other hand though there are moments that maybe they don't realize where it's hard. Maybe you don't even want to stick with it at a certain point. I heard that for you, one of those maybe kind of very frustrating moments was when you went to audition about 10 years ago for a spot in a TV series, Criminal Minds, and something happened there. What what was, I guess, why was that a uh, eye-opening thing in a bad way? Oh, really? It was really fun for me to play the villain, by the way. You know, the cops were chasing me. Oh, what a thrill. Once you got cast. Yes. (laughs) Right, absolutely. That's, you know, but I'll never forget this moment. So I had a friend of mine, and his name is Matt. And so Matt could sign, and we worked together at Deaf West quite a few times in the past. And so they asked Matt to audition. And when he read the script, he saw that it was a deaf role who had surgery and kind of and could sign, and he didn't feel like it was right for him. So he asked the producers, hey, do you mind if I find someone else to swap my audition time with? And keep in mind, I'll interpret for him. And then producers were like, oh, I don't know about that. And so it actually happened. So he contacted me, said, hey, do you mind auditioning? It was kind of last minute. I said, fine. So I showed up and I sat in the lobby and I, I got the script. And so he said, I'll interpret for you. And I said, okay, let's see what happens. And I look over, and all these hearing actors seated beside me, some of them were, like, signing like this, A, B, C, and others were, like, covering their ears like this to try and prepare for the role. And I was just like, oh, my God. You know, you hearing people are playing deaf. And so they called my name, Troy Kotzer. So I showed up, and I just nailed it. And the producers and casting directors actually gave me a standing ovation after the audition. And so later on, I got the role. But we hired Matt to be my interpreter. So he gave up his role, and we ended up hiring him to interpret on set so we'd both get a paycheck. So it was great. It was a beautiful moment. And I'm so glad that they opened their mind to really cast authentically. And the director said, hey, you're my favorite. I want to work with you. And so it ended up being very fun. It was a crazy character. And I said, hey, do you mind if I twitch my left eye like this? He goes, hey, it's up to you. So it gave me the freedom to really play this character with this twitching eye. Because, of course, this character had surgery on one side of his face, so I, I added this twitch. It was fantastic. <laughs> now, you were occasionally popping up in all kinds of TV stuff. There were an episode, again, that we, we talked about of CSI New York. There was Scrubs. These are things that, that – it's nice credits, but it's hard when, you know, you're not a regular just to pay the bills, to support a family. You had, by this point, I think, children, I believe – uh, can you talk about how you 
just some of the sacrifices that you had to make in order to stay in the game and also whether you ever seriously considered getting out of the game. You know, I was this close to giving up. I gave up my car. I had to take the city bus. I had to take the shuttle to go to the food store. And, you know, I really learned not to have too many bags because your arms would get too tired carrying them on the bus. And the next day I'd have to go back and go shopping again and just trying to save money and cut corners in any way I could. But what was important was that my daughter went to a good school and I wanted her to stay in that neighborhood. And I'm so grateful to my wife. And so she got a full-time job to support us, but she stuck with me and believed in me. But she started to become worried. I was getting to be a 50-something. And, you know, other folks have retirement plans. And what am I supposed to do about my daughter and her future? So I was extremely anxious and I was starting to feel like giving up. And so I auditioned for CODA and I told myself, this is my last chance. This is my last hope. And I gave it my best shot. When it was done, you know, COVID hit and the pandemic and all that. And so I got the role. So I quit my, my job and I go, this is my last chance. So I sh we shot CODA. And after that was right before COVID, COVID came out. And so I moved to the state of Arizona and I had to start all over again at square one, right? If you know what I mean. Yeah. And so then CODA got these awards and these nominations. And I was like, wow, this is my very last straw. It was just, I have this thread of a straw, right? But let's go back because you said you quit your job in order to accept the role of CODA. What were you doing at the time when you got the call that you had been cast in CODA? So I worked as an advocate for clients at, at GLAD, the Greater Los Angeles Agency on Deafness. And so it's called GLAD. That's the acronym. They're in Los Angeles. And, uh, and I was working in Ventura County for GLAD to support the deaf community and different clients. And I was there for about three months. And after this happened, I gave them my two weeks notice and quit. And they were very supportive of me. But it was great for the deaf community, too, to feel inspired and see a deaf actor really succeed. Of course. Well, let's, I mean, the fact that you even knew there was a project, Coda. This was Sean Hedder, who had done TV writing and directing. But for her, this was a big step also. And I know that, do you know how you first came to her attention and then do you remember how you first heard about CODA? So after I was audition, I, I got the role in CODA as Frank Rossi. I asked Sean, you know, how did you know about me? And she comes saw me at Deaf West Theater twice for two different productions. One was Home at the Zoo, mm -hmm. and that was written by Edward Albee. Yeah. Albee. Yeah. And the second one was... Our Town. Our Town. <laughs> and that was at the Pasadena Playhouse. Ah, and she said she saw me there. And so... Uh, the, and I'll never forget this. So when I auditioned, and for the first time, Sean came up to me and said, hey, I thought Sean was the assistant director because she looked so young. Yes, yes. And so I was looking around, and I didn't know she, Sean was the director. And so she gave me some instructions, and I auditioned, and I did it a few different ways, and I left. And later on, I was like, oh, that's her. She's actually the director. And she had explained that she had, her and the producers had really fought after seeing my audition, to cast authentic, authentically. Because there had been pressure, right, to cast an A-list person. And even if they were hearing. Absolutely. And I understand, you know, historically, there's a lot of politics and financial reasons to cast an A-lister, and they want to get their investment back, and they want big names, period. But I'm so grateful that our producer, Patrick, and Philippe, 
our producers Patrick and Philippe and Sean, our director, really were looking for the right fit, even an independent film with a low budget. And I realized that that story just is so valuable and so inspiring for everyone worldwide, internationally even. So it's been such a beautiful journey, and it's a thrill to be here today. Well, and I I just do want to note, so this movie was adapted from a French film from 2014, La Famille Bellier, which when they cast this movie, they actually had hearing people playing deaf parents, right? The, the, The character that you played and the rest of the family were all hearing actors. I'm very happy that La Familia Bellier existed, and and it was sort of like a baby step, like planting a seed. And once you plant that seed, it begins to grow and blossom. And when that story is successful, you know, hearing folks playing deaf, I can understand the fear and playing it safe. And then we did a version in English, this adaptation, and this time we were able to cast authentically. And it was like the seed blossoming into its tree with strong roots, and there's always room for improvement in storytelling. Sure. Now, you had known Daniel, you had known Marley, but now you are going away from your daughter to go make this movie, and the actress who's going to play your daughter, Amelia Jones, is going away from her father to come make it. And I think that there was something kind of... You, it sounds like you. there were things that were done for all of you to bond nicely. I think where you were living and how you were shooting the scenes on the boat and all of that. But it does sound like you and Amelia really bonded. We did bond. And we had this amazing chemistry. Everything we went through, you know, looking back, when I saw Amelia, she reminded me so much of my daughter. They were around the same age, just maybe a year apart. The way she behaved... The way she signed and the way she was fishing, she had so many commonalities with my daughter. And the way she signed, it wasn't like completely fluent, but, but you know, similar to how my daughter signed. And she loved music, just like my daughter in real life does. And so I felt a real connection there. And I applaud her because she was so young, so had so much courage. She was so motivated. And I've worked with many hearing actors who were just worried about signing and learning their specific lines. Are we ready to shoot? All right, let me sign my lines. Thank you. And then they go home. And I wasn't really able to develop a relationship or engage with them. But with Amelia, when she was done with her lines, she wanted to chat with us about what our lives were like, about fishing, about dirty jokes or whatever. And we were just all laughing. And then we went back to work. So we developed this real connection. You know, I was just sitting there one day. She came behind me and just gave me a big hug. And so, you know, during these breaks on set, we were really able to build our relationship. And she told me herself, she goes, hey, Troy, you remind me of my father, too. And so it was like we really, it was beautiful. And it was, we had this amazing chemistry. So that's who played your daughter. Daniel played your son. But he also, I guess, was your roommate during this. And also, you guys are, you're co-conspirator, right? There were almost some some problems with the law. Not me, not me. Mostly Daniel. Mostly Daniel. He's the big troublemaker. He tends to be on Tinder all the time, you know? And I told him, hey, you know, is that part, it's part of your character or is this your, is this something else? I'm not sure. But, you know, we had so much fun. Uh, we had a great sense of humor. 24-7, we were together. And it felt like we were father-son in real life. So we had a great benefit of socializing. And yeah, we got in a bit of trouble. (laughs) I mean, I told Daniel, hey, I've never been in an Airbnb before. Yes. Okay? But Daniel had. He goes, oh, yeah, come on. Let's get an Airbnb. So we moved in. (laughs) 
We had this beautiful house, and the furniture was set up. It was furnished. There was a TV, and I was like, I feel like I'm breaking into a house. He goes, no, this is what Airbnb is like, Troy. So we checked all the light switches. We flicked them all on. And one of them was the foghorn that would go out into the harbor, extremely loud. Being deaf, we were completely unaware of this. So we said, hey, cool. So we sat out on the patio enjoying ourselves, and all of a sudden the cops show up, and they're all covering their ears, and the neighbors had all been making noise complaints, and it was so embarrassing. And the pizza delivery guy showed up at the same time. And so all these people are showing up at our Airbnb, and the cops had to call the owner of the house to say, how the hell do you turn this foghorn off? And so... Cops put this note and they taped it and said, do not touch. And we said, all right. (laughs) And I'm sure the folks at the Airbnb had never had any deaf guests before or maybe since. Right, right. You know, it wasn't quite deaf friendly for us. I was going to say, though, this could have been a scene in the movie. This is... (laughs) So... Yeah, sure. That's something we can add to the story. Now, the, the, the moment, though, that I think most people cite when they talk about what they found the most moving about your performance, about the film, is the one in the back of the truck where you put your hand on Ruby, Amelia's neck, to feel the vibrations of her singing. And I wondered, was that scripted or was that improvised? It feels so real that there almost, it feels like there must have been some real life moment that inspired that. So when I read the script and I saw that scene, I knew that it was an extremely special moment. And I had to really be careful with the the choices I made as an actor. I didn't want to really follow the script word by word in English, but I understood the intent of that. And, And I used the script as a guideline to what Sean's vision was. And so I asked Sean what her vision was. We took the time to chat. And I said, hey, do you mind if we try a few ways? You know, I want to follow what really fits my instinct and my gut coming from a deaf cultural perspective. And so there was a line in there after she sang where Frank says, thank you. And I felt like, you know, it's very common. Everyone knows thank you. Wherever you go as a deaf person, you go to Starbucks, you get a drink. Thank you, thank you, thank you, right? And do I say thank you to my daughter like that? Like she's a stranger? I wanted something special that was touching. So instead, I made the decision to kiss her on her forehead. And to me, that was thank you. The audience is smart enough to figure that out. And so when we were eye to eye, looking at each other and feeling that energy, the energy was there, even without words, without dialogue, without sign language. And we just had that energy in our eyes and we left the audience to make their own interpretation of that moment personally. That's beautiful. And so really, it was an extremely special moment. I'm so glad we captured it. This production wraps after 30 days, I believe. And I know for all of you, it was it was a special thing and maybe not easy to let go. Can you take me into your mindset at that point and also what you thought at that point the best case scenario was for this movie? Because I'm guessing that you were not imagining it's going to get into Sundance. It's going to open Sundance. It's going to win all these awards at Sundance. It's going to be sold for a record amount of money at Sundance. Uh, it's going to get nominated for three Oscars including Best Picture, and you're going to get nominated. I mean, this is like, it must have been unfathomable at that point. I mean, even though it's a clearly went well, that's a big, that's a big leap. Of course, I didn't expect how far Coda would, would go. I thought we had a great film that really everyone could enjoy, but I didn't realize how far we could go. And it was amazing. 
You know, I've received so many messages from folks that I don't know even who they are. And many of them are CODAs saying, Troy, thank you. Finally, we feel seen. Finally, they feel recognized and they're able to feel proud to be a CODA. You know, one example is my wife and she's a teacher and she teaches ASL at the high school level and, you know, beginner level. And many of them don't pay attention. They don't do their homework. But when they, lo- when they found out that her husband was a nominee, they changed their attitude. They suddenly started behaving themselves. And they're like, all right, I'm going to do my homework on time. I'm going to learn sign language. And so it was amazing to see the impact of CODA in so many different ways. You know, it was a feel-good movie, and it was time for a fresh take and a fresh perspective. And, you know, some a moment that we were waiting for. And finally, we hit it with our film. So this all kind of started, I guess it's January 20. 20- 21 with Sundance, virtual Sundance. Then I guess the whole awards aspect of it, aside from the awards you won at Sundance, starts with the Gotham Awards in New York, where you were recognized, I think, for the first time. And then it's been just nonstop since then. So I wonder what have been the highlights of this whole journey? And can you specifically tell us what Oscar nomination morning was like for you? There is some footage that people can find online of of you finding out. But I want to hear from you just the journey up through that and then that morning in particular. Remember that I'm an outsider here. No one knew who I was until that morning when Marley and Sean and everyone started sending me messages saying, congratulations, Troy, you're nominated for a Gotham Award. A Gotham and I go, do you mean Batman? <laughs> do you mean Gotham City? Because I had not heard of the Gotham Awards. It was the introduction. And so Marley said, hey, you know, the Gotham Awards are the beginning of awards season. And so that's the start, you know, November through, through March. And I said, okay, I wasn't aware of that. And so then I did a bit of research and I found out that the Gotham Awards were budget, budgeted films under $35 million. And so they recognized independent films and, and low, lower budget films. And so I was so excited to be a nominee. And when they announced that I was Best Supporting Actor, I was a bit confused because I thought there'd be a male and female category, but they had gotten rid of the categories and mixed all the genders. And then they chose me. And I was so overwhelmed and I'll never forget that moment you know, coming out on that red carpet when we got there and all of the flashbulbs and the pictures and the interviews, I almost couldn't find my interpreter for I was nearly blind from all the photos. And so it was such an interesting experience. And now, you know, I've grown, I've matured, I've begun to understand, you know, the SAG Awards was one of my favorite evenings because as an actor, I felt like I'm part of the acting family. I was being recognized as a peer. I really felt that we, we have an understanding as actors of what we go through and the struggles, trials and tribulations. And at BAFTA in London was such an honor. It wasn't only Americans, but they recognized my work across the Atlantic. And oh my gosh, how touching is that? And so I was so grateful to BAFTA. And then now leading up to the Oscars, you know, I don't know, (laughs) but I'm extremely proud to be a nominee. And really I consider all nominees to be winners because these are all extremely talented actors. And I'm so proud just to be among that peer group. And I feel like, you know, really getting my, I finally received my honorary PhD, maybe five by now. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I think just what I was referring to earlier, people could have a lot of fun if they want to go Google. I think you 
put it out there, this moment when you were nominated, it was being filmed and you literally went backwards in your chair. It was... Uh... Oh, yeah. You know, I have to blame our director, Sean Hader, for that one. She asked me, hey, how do you feel about me posting this? And I go, yeah, my wife filmed this. And she goes, okay, I'll just send it to you, what my reaction looked like. And she said, ah, screw you, Troy, and just it went viral. <laughs> I thought it was great. It was crazy. I didn't have any control and by the way, it going viral. It must... I had to swallow my pride on that one. <laughs> and it must run in the family because at the... Uh, SAG Awards, you guys get announced as the best ensemble, and Daniel flipped flipped his chair backwards. <laughs> um, but, okay, last few things are just, I thought it might be a, a nice thing to ask you, you know, it would have been nice if a few years ago somebody asked, you know, a person, if there had been someone in your position, who are, you know, three or four or five deaf actors who deserve to be on your radar, who people should know about if they're casting a part or whatever, people from Deaf West, wherever. So now you're in this chair, people are listening to you. Who are three or four or five people that we should know about in this industry who we might not know about? Okay, I can say several names yep. uh, that I'm watching myself. Daniel Durant is one. Yes. Sandra May Frank is another. Wawa is another. Sean Forbes is another. Millicent Simmons yes. is another. Quiet Place. And she's in A Quiet Place and, yeah, 1 and 2. Yeah. No, it's good because... And Lauren Ridloff is another one from uh, The Eternals. Now, you know, people should have no excuse to claim they don't know of anyone to go to, but... That's what Marley was trying to say. Yeah. There's so many t deaf, deaf actors out there. There's so much talent. And we were just waiting for the door to open, just waiting for Hollywood to become ready. And now with Coda, it's just a wonderful step forward. Last question. One week from tomorrow, and we're recording this on Saturday, so that's why I'm saying that, uh, you are going to be sitting in the orchestra at the Dolby Theater. You're going to be on television in every country in the world, and you are going to be an Oscar nominee and quite possibly up on stage. Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> quite possibly up on Hi, stage hello. as an Oscar winner, right? So what if, if we had told this to somehow we pulled aside, you know, young Troy— and said, this is what's going to happen in a few decades. What would he have said? And also now, there might be a young, there will be young deaf kids watching this. What do you hope they take away from watching you in that position? So first off, young Troy, you know, I'd tell young Troy to finish his degree. Get your college <laughs> degree, Troy. Make sure you have a backup plan. Yep. Have insurance. Show business is unpredictable. Yep. Know what I mean? Yep, yep. Secondly, for young deaf kids out there, you know, it's a great opportunity today because of smartphones and technology. And so you have great access. You know, with, with an iPhone, you almost have Hollywood in your pocket. You can make your own films. Start making your own short films. Play around with that. It's not like in my time 30 or 40 years ago where we were limited to, we didn't have computers. We didn't have smartphones. We really had to struggle. And it was expensive to make films. And now with technology improving, really... That, that can help them get jobs. And now these young kids, oh, come on, you know, start making movies. Then no you got excuse. phones yeah. in your pocket. You yeah. know what I mean? You yeah. know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it's been so fun getting to, uh, you know, see your work, getting to learn about your story. And like a lot of people, uh, many, many people, we are rooting for you on two Sundays from now and wish you all the best. Thank you so much for doing this. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.